Hello, everyone. It's January 30th, 2024. The two big stories this week, the journey of ingenuity has come to an end, but it lasted longer than we could have hoped. We also have an update on Slim, confirmed to be on its head, but it's hanging in there. One saga has ended, the other, wait and see. So let's talk about it and lift off. And you're through the tower. Welcome to episode 444 of the Overall Link Connects podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. I'm Dennis. Dennis, you got some uh, interesting, I, I guess an interesting topic that you uh, got from uh, a very frequented website, I guess you could say, among spaceflight enthusiasts for one reason. Yeah, yeah. Delta V uh, shared in our Discord a, an Ars Technica piece by Eric Berger about a, like a literal padlock that evidently shuttle commanders would put on the mid-deck hatch to keep someone from, you know, basically wanting to end it all and destroying the mission and everybody on board. Getting some fresh air. Yeah. So I guess almost should, maybe we should do a, you know, a, a content warning if this like something you don't want to listen to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I appreciate the content warning. So we are going to talk about um, somebody considering suicide here. And and so while, yeah, evidently it looked like there were a few people, in particular this being the 80s and 90s shuttle missions, where it sounded like like it almost is more interesting of just like a cultural kind of like view of what these missions were like because they had the payload uh, specialists. So like the people who like, you know, I'm an engineer at Lockheed and I'm not a professional astronaut, but I'm going to fly up on, you know, a shuttle mission just so I could be in charge of this particular payload that's that we're sending up there. And so evidently the person that precipitated all of this was, you know, on a space lab mission and evidently they had gotten very despondent about their payload not working and had kind of made some comment about if you don't give me more time to try to troubleshoot this, uh, I'm not coming back. And they did not like that kind of like thing, even if that was just meant to be kind of hyperbolic or just to try to convey how upset they were about this. But like, yeah, that's something that the ground apparently took very seriously. And in the future, on that mission, apparently the the commander, Bob Overmeyer, just put duct tape on the hatch. <laughs> but uh, it, for future missions, there's a straight up padlock. And the, the article includes a link to a uh, like a Dan Rather news bit from 1995 that actually shows a picture of the padlock. And so even though Eric Berger, like, you know, he, he talks of multiple people and some of the um, people at flight control, uh, you know, at least one big person at NASA had not really ever heard about this uh, padlock, uh, a backup <laughs> for really securing it. But like he straight up, uh, you know, the he's interviewing one of the astronauts or maybe not them, rather somebody else's, but like there's an interview with uh uh, one of the uh, former commanders, and he's talking about how, yeah, not only did you know he put the padlock on his mission, but it had a code that he didn't share with all the people. So once again, this kind of like, evidently they were more suspicious of certain people and less suspicious of others uh, during it. So, so this this first astronaut who threatened to not come home was Taylor Wong. He was actually the first. Uh, astronaut of Asian descent to go to space. And he was a mission specialist there to perform uh, an experiment that he had designed called the drop dynamics module experiment, uh, a very shuttle uh, kind of experiment, right? Like drop dynamics, presumably liquid drops. And the the way I saw it was like, well, it's it seems pretty callous that, you know, somebody who's a, a pioneer for uh, a whole group of people who in the U.S. have been marginalized goes up and has the bad luck to get uh, to have his experiment malfunction and is not given the time to fix it. 
And like, I, I think that's true, but I can also kind of see this, this weird uh, perspective from the ground where they are acting in this colorblind manner, which is not acceptable, but you know, they say, well, everybody has the same, uh, the same opportunities in space with their experiment. If another experiment fails, they're not going to get troubleshooting time if our schedule is this packed. So if somebody else doesn't get it, you don't get it. And okay, I can see how that's kind of reasonable from one perspective. Um, but the, the crew actually said that he became despondent after this and started asking or talking about the hatch. It's like, so really all we have to do is flip that open and, and all the air is gone. And, and I can see how that's definitely a, a worrying behavior. Well, so can you tell me how easy it would be to open that hatch? I mean, I guess this is one of those ones that opens yeah, outward. Exactly. Since, since Apollo one, it is very easy to open that hatch. Uh, there's basically two actions you have to do. You basically turn a knob and then pull a lever. So it, it's, it's easy enough if you are intending to open the door. But it's not like you're just going to bump it and accidentally pop it open. There was one other kind of anecdote in there that was pretty cool we didn't touch on, which was, I guess there wasn't a padlock on this flight, but during 1999, evidently a multiple-time flyer had a, yeah, so I'm quoting here, a multiple-time flyer had a bad reaction to some medicine he took after the launch. This seriously affected his mental state, and the astronaut had to be physically restrained from taking drastic action including opening the hatch. Wow. What medication was that? Um, maybe the kind of uh, space sickness one that they give you for the first day. But I think you could kind of somewhat narrow it down to like a handful of people. If you just look at, you know, men on those three missions who flew in 1999. But mm -hmm. um, pretty scary because, you know, this is the kind of thing I guess we should think about more as we have less aggressively screened people going into orbit as we kind of increase access to space. Um, that's something to just kind of keep in mind. So, so Chris in the chat says, I mean, occasionally Chris is a commercial pilot. Chris says, uh, I mean, occasionally we will hide in quotes, the crash acts, uh, on the flight deck. If we have a jump seat or we don't know, generally someone who doesn't have a vested interest in remaining employed that, I mean, that's, that's prudent. <laughs> they, uh, be, but when we're talking about astronauts who have trained for years and, and sometimes longer, uh, it, it were justified in kind of having this reaction. But I think uh, I think hiding an axe on the flight deck is, is perfectly reasonable. Ingenuity down. Unfortunately, uh, finally, uh, had a good run, <laughs> yeah. but it looks like we're looking at some rotor blade damage, huh? Yeah. We, we talked about this in short and sweet last week. This was all over the news, but, um, Delta V linked a Twitter fee or a Twitter post, uh, in discord that had some reprocessed photos. Actually, my first instinct was that the reprocessed photos were better than the original, but like looking at them, I can't really tell what the benefit of this reprocessing was. Like I can't tell what it's highlighting, but yeah, end of last week, I think it was like uh, on Thursday, uh, NASA released a photo that ingenuity had taken and there's a shadow of one of the rotors, uh, on the ground, right in the middle of the photo. And you can see the end is all, uh, scraggly. The Twitter post, which we'll link, uh, has two photos next to each other with different lighting conditions. So you can kind of see the, the shape of the ground a little better, um, with shadows and then lit more, uh, top down. It's since, uh, been indicated that this rotor, 
uh, lost about 25% uh, either of its mass or its length. Since it's tapering, they're not exactly the same thing, but I think they're probably roughly the same thing. And then on the ground, you can see a, a divot in the in the regolith. And here the regolith is uh, a nice sandy, sort of a, a loose desert dirt. And there, there's sort of this gouge. And, and I've seen some people saying that it looks like uh, that divot is where the rotor went in, although that may be the case, but it might also be where one of the, where one of the feet hit the dirt. Um, in the photo, you can see uh, one landing leg, w w the shadow of one landing leg, and then a little tiny bit of each leg on either side of the, of the image. And some people have I misidentified one of the feet as being a rock. And uh, I think somebody in Discord uh, put a very funny meme in that was Bill Nelson announcing uh, a new Mars helicopter called Vengeance that's going to go take out the rock that killed Ingenuity. Hmm. Um, incorrect interpretation, but still a high quality meme. And you can also see in these photos little black flecks um, that I have been given to understand are pieces of the rotor. Uh, NASA said that you can see pieces of the rotor. I don't see any other good candidate. So uh, little bits of the, the carbon composite uh, kind of chipped away. So right now we're not sure exactly what happened. Uh, as a reminder, this was Flight 72. On Flight 71, um, Ingenuity landed earlier than expected or earlier than planned. Um, so Flight 72, they decided to do a straight up and down to uh, try and get some diagnostic data and figure out what was going to happen or figure out what had happened. Um, and just as the helicopter was coming into land, it lost communication with the rover, uh, just like on Flight 71. And this time, uh, apparently it landed at an angle and, and dipped one of its rotor blades into the ground. But we're unlikely to know exactly what happened here. There's some data loss. I'm not sure if it's going to be recoverable or uh, if it's if it's gone for good. And because of that, we're never really going to know for sure exactly what the sequence was here. Uh, did the blade strike happen first and that caused the communications loss? Or was there a power loss that caused both uh, the communications loss and the blade strike on the ground? You know, the you don't have enough power, you can't really do your uh, all of your control stuff. Uh, somebody from NASA is saying that it's unlikely that we'll ever know for sure. But one possible cause that I, th I think actually has a lot of merit is, or at least sounds pretty reasonable to me, is the idea that um, because this stretch of, of Martian dirt is so featureless, it's really nice and smooth, that the the navigation camera pointing down basically didn't have any features on the ground to track. And so that can cause um, the navigation system to track either non-existent features or features that aren't stable and shouldn't be tracked. Uh, but basically to come up with, you know, bad position and movement values. And if that happens, uh, I think it seems pretty reasonable. The vehicle can think that it's translating sideways. So it starts pitching over to fight the, the translation uh, and can wind up just flopping itself over into the dirt. Also, what's kind of interesting is, you know, if it does a really strong uh, pitch over maneuver, uh, apparently that can cause power loss. Um, I guess if you throttle up the engines too hard or, you know, something like that. And that power loss could have been adding to 
the situation, um, causing, you know, brownouts across the processors and things like that. So unfortunately, that's like all of the really juicy information we have. Um, I've got a bunch of stats because I'm so darn proud of this little, this little helicopter. It's kind of interesting. It's it's actually pretty close to the rover right now. Uh, MMGIS, NASA's uh, GIS software, or GIS like browser, has uh, a, a great amount of data on both uh, Ingenuity and Perseverance. And uh, there'll be a link in the show notes. And if you go into the layers and and add in the the rover. Uh, drive path, you can see just how closely coupled these two were. Uh, obviously, Ingenuity can't talk to home without the rover being in sight, but um, Ingenuity also acted as a scout. It's really lovely to zoom in wow. and follow their path. Um, if you turn on the waypoints, you can also see the, the dates uh, that each waypoint was set, so you can kind of see where they were in relationship to each other. I'd really like to take this data and do an animation uh, you know, playing through time their position so that you can actually see their relative positions uh, all throughout the the helicopter's life. But right now they're you know they're pretty close, um, and uh, Ingenuity would have been doing some scouting. So it, it looks like it crashed uh, in dunes, which the rover is probably unlikely to go through. But maybe we'll get uh, an external photo instead of just a selfie, a, a shadow selfie. That'd be pretty cool. Mm. Okay, so some stats. Most of these are straight off of the NASA website. They've got them listed out, but they also have the whole flight log. Now that there are no more flights, that flight log is up to date. So I went and scraped the data and I started looking to see if I could find any other interesting stats. I, I came up with two, maybe what one inter one really interesting one that's not listed. And then another one that's just counting, but Ingenuity's first flight was on April 19th, 2021. Uh, of course, it had 72 flights in total. Uh, it flew 10 and a half miles or 17 kilometers, actually almost exactly 17 kilometers, 16,972 meters. Uh, so that's just the lateral distance it, it traveled. It has 129 minutes of flight time, which is really spectacular. Its maximum altitude uh, was 78.7 feet. That's 24 meters. So here's the really good stat that I put together. I took all of the maximum altitudes from each flight and I added them up. So this number represents... Uh, if Ingenuity had flown up to max altitude and back down and didn't have any ups and downs during its flight. So this is the minimum vertical distance that it flew. It ascended and descended 766 meters total. That's a, a reasonable number going horizontally. I have no idea what that looks like vertically. And so I went and looked it up. The Empire State Building, if you take it from its bottom floor, the ground floor, all the way up to the ceiling of the top floor. So we're going to discount everything on the roof, the antennas and everything. But if you take all of its floors and stack them up, so you have two of them, then it's almost exactly 766 meters. So Ingenuity, over the course of years, basically flew all the way up to the top of that Double Empire State Building and then flew back down. Uh, I, I really like that. The other the other thing I compiled, I counted up the number of airfields. There are 43. And as far as I can tell, they didn't skip any. So they did airfield A, B, C, D, all the way up to Z. 
Then they switched over to the Greek alphabet and they went, started at alpha and they got all the way to key. So there are only two letters after that, uh, psi and omega. And so if, <laughs> if ingenuity would have gotten just three more flights in, they would have had to go to a new alphabet or a new airfield numbering system. Those are some pretty awesome stats. <laughs> Very respectable. Remember, this thing was supposed to fly for five flights. And when we talked to the team after, I think, flight two or three, they were like, yeah, so for flight five, we're going to do something crazy. We don't know what it is yet, but like, you know, we're going to, we're going to push the single limits. Maybe we'll crash. Like, who knows? And like, I, I don't know when they found out that they were going to get, you know, this huge mission, mission extension. Um, I don't know if the team knew that at the time or not. Uh, but boy, did they keep it a good secret. And like, it is so pleasing to me. This, this vehicle's career. Very, very good. I mean, it's unlikely, but I'm holding out hope that at some point in the future, like that rotor blade spinning as fast as it was and hitting the ground and flying out to some distance. I hope uh, Perseverance accidentally starts to like run over it and like, oh, what's that on the ground over there? And That'd be cool. 25% yeah. of a helicopter's rotor blade. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, maybe not 25% because I, I think it would have shattered into little tiny pieces. Uh, yeah, but who, yeah, yeah. who knows? <laughs> like, I mean, it, it's carbon composite, you know, maybe it. Maybe it shattered, maybe a part of it shattered and, and the tip actually went flying. But yeah, it, it could be really far away given how fast it was going. Uh, Colin asks, is this the only solar powered helicopter? I can't imagine. I mean, we don't really have that much use for solar powered helicopters on Earth just because we're not willing to wait the time to recharge the batteries. But I'm sure somebody's put a solar panel on, you know, uh, a DJI drone at some point. So that was the first story, uh, Ingenuity Down. And now we're going to talk about Slim Upside Down. So yeah, we talked about this last week. This could have been a short and sweet, but I I liked the the synergy of the of the two names that mm. popped into my head too much to, <laughs> to split them up. So what's going down with Slim? Yeah. So last time we talked about, uh, last episode, we talked about um, Scott Manley uh, guessing that it was nose down in the dirt. And he was exactly right. So we've got a new photo uh, shot by LEV2. That's the, uh, the spherical uh, one of the two uh, landers that spit out. Um, and the thing is just it's exactly what you'd think it's it's nose down it's balancing it kind of has wings almost like it's it's not spherical it's sort of oblong and it's kind of balancing on the on the edge of one of those uh sides and, and it's nose so it's not you know it's kind of at a precarious angle it looks really sad if you ask me i think i think it looks really sad so it is uh it's set down 55 meters away from their target point um remember their Landing accuracy goal was a hundred meters, so they're good. Um, unfortunately, the solar array is indeed facing westward, and it really looks like if they wanted to, they could fire up the attitude control thrusters and just give it a little nudge uh, and set it down on its feet. But I think that's probably too risky uh, of a of a maneuver, especially when it's facing west. Uh, hmm. not north or south. So the sun is eventually going to illuminate those panels. The question is if the lander will uh, be able to wake up at that point. Unfortunately, Jax has now confirmed that one of the two main thrusters uh, failed on the way down or, or very likely failed. And so this would have been during the terminal landing sequence 
uh, it was under 50 meters off the surface. Um, when one of those two thrusters failed, it generated uh, lateral motion. And so the vehicle uh, continued its descent while trying to slow that translation as much as possible. And it hit the ground uh, while still translating sideways. Um, unfortunately, uh, it got pushed outside of the last two obstacle detection images it took on the way down. Remember, we talked about how it uh, pauses to take photos and the the area that it photographed, it had already left it. So it had no idea what the ground looked like at that point, even if it could have regained control. And yeah, it, it crashed and was able to call home. Uh, they did get uh, a photo from the multiband spectroscopic camera, or rather they, they built a collage out of, I think like 200 photos. And I think that's the spectroscopy. They're just layering them on top of each other and coloring them. Uh, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I, th- I think that's what happened. You know, so they, they got some images and then they have now powered down the, the lander. So it has a uh, 12% battery charge left. They specifically said that they were powering it down to protect against over discharge. If you drain a battery beyond a certain point, you won't be able to charge it again. Uh, that's the way lithium ions tend to work. So, you know, it, maybe they saved enough that, uh, they think it'll be able, uh, th- it'll be useful powering the vehicle back up once they get sunlight on the solar panels. I, c- I kind of doubt it. I think they, uh, pushed the battery levels as low as they could. And yeah, that, that's it. Slim's, uh, Slim's done uh, until, until it gets, maybe it'll get some more power. There's it's not a guarantee, okay. but it might get more power. <laughs> yeah. It, it might get more power. So it's not a hundred percent done, but it's, it's done for now. So is the limiting factor here, like once it loses power, how cold it gets and that that might make it, uh, permanently dead. Yeah. I suspect that's part of the issue. The vehicle is not designed to last the duration of lunar night, right? The, those two weeks of, of dark cold, it's not going to make it. So yeah, it's going to be warmed by the sun. It's not in the attitude that it was intended to be in. So that warming might not be in the place that you want. It's definitely turned off its battery heaters, I would think. So yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll see. I, I think it's sort of an unknown regime right now. They, they don't really have good expectations. Maybe, maybe they do. Maybe they characterize this thing really, really well and they can simulate, uh, heating on different angles. But yeah, I, I suspect mm-hmm. that's one of the, one of the big concerns. And I, and I suppose the, the rovers don't have, you know, direct to earth communication capabilities. Are they able to, you know, uh, do that? LEV1 does. LEV1 is the oh. hopper. LEV2 doesn't. And I believe that the LEV2 photo that we have was, uh, downlinked by LEV1, not slim. What I do know for sure is that they tested inner rover communication and that uh, LEV1 did call home. So I'm not sure which path this photo took that we have, but, but yeah, the, um, so that's the thing. And LEV, LEV1, I believe, has solar panels. LEV2, I don't think, does. So for what it's worth, yeah, they, they will still be able to do some science. That's so cool. I love that. And then, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. I guess stay tuned for further information on this. <laughs> so this is still a uh, evolving An story. ongoing saga. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, the ongoing saga of Slim. Um, and before, before we leave, I want to point out that in the photo from LEV2, um, you can see its wheel on one side of the image. Like you can see the inside 
uh, of that wheel with the the notches. It, it's pretty cool if you like look for it. You go, oh yeah, that's what that is. Okay, so let's do three short and sweets this week. Dennis, what is the first? Redwire to provide elements of Blue Origin Space Tug. Redwire has won a contract from Blue Origin to provide solar arrays, cameras, and power distribution units for the latter's Blue Ring orbital transfer vehicle. Redwire's rollout solar arrays, or ROSES, have flown on NASA's DART mission and are currently in the process of replacing some of the ISS's arrays. The Blue Ring vehicle is designed to carry up to three metric tons of payload and provide delivery from medium Earth orbit to cislunar space. The companies did not disclose the value of the contract nor when the delivery of the components is expected. And then next up, two companies test reusable booster prototypes. Two Chinese companies have recently tested vertical landing boosters. Privately owned Landspace launched and landed a prototype of its Jiuquei 3 vehicle, sending the Methalox rocket 350 meters high during a 60-second flight. The successful test landed within 2.4 meters of its target. Meanwhile, state-owned X-Pace completed a hop of their Kuaizhou vehicle, which also uses methane and oxygen as its propellant. While tethered from above to a crane, the booster successfully lifted off the surface, hovered, and landed vertically 22 seconds later. And finally, ESA Astronaut operates Earth-bound robots while on orbit. Marcus Want, who recently traveled to ISS as part of Axiom 3, successfully tested DLR-developed robots back on Earth. Included in the test was a four-legged robot named Bert and a humanoid robot on wheels called Roland Justin, part of the Surface Avatar project, which aims to allow astronauts to control multiple robots remotely. Want successfully operated them while in the Columbus module as they maneuvered and performed specific acts at DLR's facilities in Oberfaffenhofen. Can't you just see this thing popping on a cowboy hat, a Stetson, and saying, and I'm rolling Justin. (laughs) So moving on to this week in spaceflight history, we have three winners. We have the Greek, Trezipol, and Uncle Willie. I did want to mention the one and only incorrect guest, which was from Psycho, which was a great guest because, uh, I mean, this is not – the event, but it fits perfectly and it involves a lot of numbers. Well, I guess numbers and letters that just happen to coincide with this particular date range. So yeah, he mentioned on the 3rd of February, 1994, it was the launch of Discovery on STS-60, which uh, is not the correct answer. But apparently, um, I'm just going to read this. The changing and numbering schemes throughout the course of the shuttle program and launch schedule, those adjustments meant that the STS-61A, which was the old numbering, flew in 1985 and STS-62, which was the new numbering, flew in 1994. And that was as the 61st flight with STS-60 flying between the A and 1 flights. So I just read all that because I don't even <laughs> pretend to be able to follow it. So good guess. I, I think it's fantastic. That was a lot more work than I would have been willing to do to come up with a clue. That's That should have been your clue that that wasn't the right one. No, no, no. I, I, think, I think we've definitely done more convoluted – at least I have. I've no, done maybe. more complicated yeah. clues. But for me, keeping track of shuttle flights and, you know, like which order they come in, that is the hardest <laughs> thing real. because they're just yeah. all over the place. I'm fine with it. as it, If there are letters in the number, I know I need to go look it up. If it's if it's just numbers, I'm pretty comfortable knowing where that was. <laughs> I mean, it, it's weird because when you've got the letters, at least you know the year. Uh, but you have no idea what order anything actually happened in. Um, but with just numbers, it's at least you know the order, if not the year. Fortunately, it's the fiscal year, so it's just oh, I forgot about that. That's true. Yeah, that's why Challenger was in '86, but it starts with the five. There's, there's no, there's no. no <laughs> you're not allowed to say anything positive about that naming scheme, right? <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, and if you can, there's an exception to it. So at any rate, so this event was a different third of February 1994, and and that was the launch of H2, the Japanese H2 rocket. So basically, yeah, the H2 rocket came after the H1 and before the H2A. So the clue was what comes between one and A, and in this case, it would be two. Yeah, so that was way simpler than keeping track of all those flights. <laughs> yeah, so a little bit about, I guess, where this rocket fits in. This is kind of like the Delta Three, I think, which actually it, the H1 shares a lot of heritage with that. But it's, mm. you know, a rocket that wasn't long lived. It had a couple of flights and then they, you know, moved on to the next big thing. Uh, it just seems that there are some rockets that tend to work like that. But the main purpose of this rocket was it, it was mandated to be the first entirely made in Japan rocket. So, um, prior to that, what NASDA had done, and this is the National Space Development Agency, I think is what that stands for, which I think was later merged into JAXA, right, Dennis? Oh yeah, bureaucratic Voltron. Yeah, as part of the bureaucratic Voltron, like the left leg or something. <laughs> and, um, Prior to H2, NASDA uh, had developed the N1, the N2, and the H1, and these mostly used, you know, licensed technology from the U.S., and it was mostly from the Delta rocket family. So it was uh, not really a Japanese rocket. It was kind of like, I guess, assembled in Japan, but it was parts from the U.S. So they wanted something that was, you know, completely made in Japan, and that's kind of what led to this rocket. Plus, there were some other requirements uh, as far as lift to geo. Uh, so uh, this needed to be able to carry two tons of payload to geo. And it must also be launched from the Tanegashima Launch Center. But uh, what's interesting is that I guess there was no way of doing that at that time. So they built another launch complex, and that was just for the H-2. That was called the Yoshinobu Launch Complex, which sits at the north end of Tanegashima. So they built a new launch complex, and they actually did a lot of the development of the rocket at the Yoshinobu launch complex. So this is a 49-meter high rocket and 4 meters in diameter uh, versus the H-1 just for comparison, which was 42 meters and 2.44 meters in diameter. The main thing that I guess is the most interesting about the H-2 is uh, the first stage engine, which is uh, the LE-7 first stage. And this is a Hydrolox stage combustion engine, which I, I tend to think that only the space shuttle has like a Hydrolox stage combustion engine which I know is not true, but that always surprises me when I see that. Yeah. Uh, so this is a pretty complex engine. It had a 446-second specific impulse, but there were some difficulties in development, which led to a two-year delay. I couldn't find information on exactly what went wrong, but during testing, there were some explosions and fires, and there was actually like one fatality that occurred as a result of this. Mm. But I couldn't find any information. Maybe it, it exists in Japanese, which I assume most of the information on this does. Yeah, maybe just the general things that caused the early SSMEs to explode on the test stand. You know, you're just dealing with a very complicated <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, engine with very, you know, explosive propellants. Well, I'm not surprised that, yeah, explosions would have happened, but I don't know what led to the fatality, like why there was anyone sure, that sure. close. Or if that even was involved in the explosion and fire, it could have been something separate, uh, but I have no idea. Yeah, now it would be interesting to know more details than just, yeah. you know, general teething problems with that type of engine. But mm -hmm. but yeah, but this engine, it's uh, it's kind of also known as the Mitsubishi engine. Um, it was largely developed by Mitsubishi, although there were some other companies involved. So the second stage engine, that was an LE-5A Hydrolux um, Expander Bleed Cycle Engine. Pretty cool. This one apparently was, I guess, developed from the previous LE-5 engine, but the LE-5 was a gas generator. And I don't know, I mean, that sounds like a lot of 
uh, reworking of plumbing to make it in expander cycle. So it's to me, it seems like a completely new engine, but uh, very cool. And uh, this was the very first bleed cycle engine which had ever been put into operation. So I think that's very cool uh, that it launched yeah. on the H2. So that's the second stage. And then the boosters, it has two solid boosters, and they were developed by Nissan Motors. So you got Mitsubishi and Nissan involved. Uh, it seems that Japan likes using car manufacturers to do a lot of rocket development as well, which mm-hmm. is cool. And uh, yeah, like I said, this can deliver two tons to Geo. The prior rocket, the H1, had a capacity of 1.1 tons. So, you know, about a 0.9 ton increase. Uh, so uh, let's talk about the payloads. Um, one was called uh, the Orex, and this is the Orbital Reentry Experiment. It was later named to Ryusei, which means shooting star. And um, it's basically just a little reentry blunt body comb. If you just imagine what that looks like, it looks like, you know, what would be at the tip of the space shuttle, like if it were just the nose, that's kind of what that looks like. Um, or just, you know, a heat shield. And uh, it's about 3.4 meters in diameter, uh, shielded with carbon carbon and ceramic tiling. And the objectives of this were pretty neat because I, I don't know if we've ever discussed HOPE before, but this was to test uh, heat shielding components for HOPE. And that is the H2 orbiting plane. So basically on the H2, I guess the H2 was also developed to carry, which can't be true because, I mean, like even if you're not going to geo, I don't know if, if you could hoist a, a whole space plane into orbit. I wouldn't think so. But HOPE was supposed to be a crewed shuttle-like spacecraft, but then it was later scaled down just to be used like for ISS cargo delivery. But that never happened. Yeah, I don't think we ever talked about HOPE. Very cool. I don't think so either. It kind of reminds me of like kind of like Dream Chaser. Maybe somewhere between Dream, maybe not as small as Dream Chaser, but I don't think as large as Shuttle. Maybe somewhere between those two. I've seen one image on on the web that I don't know how good the um, meaningful it is, but it does look like a legitimate page of some document uh, in Japanese. It looks like there's a uh, an H2 heavy that would be carrying it with like the the side liquid boosters. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's how you could get like something big enough to be a maybe. crude. 15-ton space plane on an H2, which otherwise would not be big enough for it. Yeah. It is larger than Dream Chaser. I mean, that that diagram that you put in there, Dennis, uh, makes it pretty clearly bigger than Dream Chaser. It seems that there were so many concepts, I guess, in the 90s, more or less, for launch vehicles like this. And really, none of them flew, I guess, except for, you know, shuttle, which was uh, the only successful space plane. And even then, uh, you know, it was very expensive and not particularly safe. Mm. But in so some of the other things that the Oryx or Ryusei was um, launched to do was to test communications blackout during the reentry phase um, and also to test GPS navigation during the reentry. Then the other payload was uh, the VEP, which is the vehicle evaluation payload. And that was later renamed to Myojo which means Venus. This was uh, to measure the accuracy of the orbital insertion and the mechanical loads which were experienced during the ascent. So it's a payload, but it's not a satellite. Um, it just had a 100-hour battery and a three-day lifespan. Um, and it did remain attached to the second stage with a dummy Apogee kick stage. I don't know why you would need that. I guess maybe just because the kick stage is what, you know, like attaches to the payload adapter. And so that makes it easier to do. Um, otherwise, I don't know why you'd put that on there. Or maybe just for the increased mass. But yeah, so there were just eight flights because like I said, um, it was succeeded by the H-2A. The sixth flight, and by the way, the names of the flights are called, you know, like first, second, third, fourth, but they're totally out of order again. But I'm just going by the actual successive number of launches. So uh, maybe I should say the 
sixth launch. But uh, this sixth flight might have actually been named like the eighth flight, I think, or something like that. I don't know why, <laughs> but you know how it is. Uh-huh. Kind of like shuttles. But uh, yeah, the sixth flight uh, had a partial failure. Then there was a total failure of the seventh flight in 1999. And the seventh flight, the failure was due to cavitation in the axial pump impeller. So basically, this is the pump that basically pressurizes the fuel before it goes into the main turbo pump because if not then you get cavitation but apparently this pump itself was creating cavitation so it didn't like actually fix that problem so yeah a failure and i don't know why it didn't happen on previous flights maybe just because this one was a particularly demanding type of a launch or type of a mission maybe something to do specifically with the flight profile or maybe it was just dumb luck not sure but the launch costs, yeah. So the idea was also to, you know, make this a relatively affordable launch vehicle. But the launch costs were, uh, they had gotten up to $190 million per launch. And that at the time was not competitive with, uh, you know, like the Ariane, uh, and I'm assuming other launch vehicles, probably several in Russia. So it already was not competitive. Um, and apparently this was partly due to something called the Plaza Accord. This was an agreement in 1985, which was meant to depreciate the dollar to balance a trade deficit for the U.S. And uh, this was an agreement between the U.S., France, Japan, West Germany, and the U.K. So basically, when this thing was first being developed, I can't remember the exact ratio, but it was like $1 to every 260 Japanese yen, and then it was down to $1 to every 100 or something like that. So yeah, it just became way too expensive. They were left with a non-competitive launch vehicle and a complete failure on that seventh flight. And they had a contract with Hughes Space and Communication Group for a 10-satellite launch, but after that failure, uh, Hughes had canceled that contract, and then NASA said, well, okay, we're just going to cancel this rocket and then we're going to move on to h2a so uh-huh. not a particularly illustrious career for the h2 but it did lead to a much better launch vehicle uh-huh. but uh yeah that's my short this week in spaceflight history <laughs> such a shame having like such an awesome engine too and uh mm-hmm. yeah it's a really good engine uh-huh. yeah to me, anything that's a Hydrolox stage combustion or a, you know, expander bleed cycle, those are just cool engines to me. Um, mm. uh, way better than gas generators. Not that I'm judging, but. <laughs> <laughs> I guess this was the last of the NASDA launch vehicles for Japan. So Yeah, I think it was. Well, Ben, you are up. Next week is the 6th to the 12th of February. Do you have a clue for us? I do. Next week in 2000, the first kleptoparasite in space. Ah, the first kleptoparasite in space. So if you have a guess as to what this clue is referencing, email us at info at com or shoot us a tweet on Mastodon. Use the hashtag thisweeksf uh, or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash discord for an invite to our discord server and then type slash TWSF to hand your guests directly to TomBot. Uh, good luck. Good luck, everybody. Okay, so let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events, and thank you to Launch Library 2, which is where we start our research each week. And Ben, you have the first of, what is it, five different events. Yep. First up is an electron from Rocket Lab flying far of a kind. Uh, that's uh, the mission name for the North Star 1 launch. Yes, you've heard this one before. It's been delayed a good couple of times, most recently due to weather. Um, so hopefully... Four of a Kind is going to be launching on Wednesday, January 31st, between 0615 hours UTC and 0700 hours UTC. And then after that, on February 1st, we have coverage of the rendezvous and capture of the Cygnus CRS-20. Um, this is the Apparently, this is the first time that there will be a private team of astronauts, um, and that's from Axiom 3, that will be on board 
uh, during a cargo mission capture. To accommodate the Cygnus pop-top door, um, and that allows for last-minute loading, since this is launching on a Falcon 9, they had to cut what's being called a gigador into uh, the fairing. I don't know what the official name for that is, but uh, yeah, it's a door that allows access once it's already been encapsulated. But there's no photos of it, so we're going to try to see if we can spot that once it's on the launch pad. It would be interesting to see. The coverage, like I said, is on February 1st, and it starts at 2.45 a.m., and that's Eastern time. Looks like capture is scheduled for 4.15, and the, the installation operations, uh, the coverage for that will be at 5.45 in the morning. So this is all starting pretty early in the morning on the East Coast. So, uh, But, yeah, watch that if you can. I don't know if you can, but, <laughs> you know, stay up later, get up early. And then next up, uh, added uh, pair NOTAMs, we have a Smart Dragon 3 or G-Long 3 uh, taking an unknown payload to an unknown orbit. <laughs> and so this would uh, take place on Friday, February 2nd, uh, between 0200 and 0800 UTC, uh, launching on a C platform, the Borun Zhuzhou platform uh, out in the uh, China Sea. And that's all speculative. All we have is a NOTAM in the area. All right. After that is Juno Perijo 58. This is uh, Juno flying past EO, and it's going to be reducing its orbit from 38 days down to 33 days. And uh, Dennis, I, I guess I really should have set up the name so that you wound up taking this one. But um, <laughs> this is their second mission extension. Does it look like they're going to get a third? I'm not sure, uh, but maybe. I think uh, Juno is still cooking and doing well, so... Yeah, I guess the longer you're orbiting, the longer you can uh, you get. I guess a better uh, what longitudinal study of yeah. uh, Jupiter's magnetic field. So longer is always better in that regard. I wonder if they're going to get a Cassini-style grand finale or not. But that's coming up on February third. I don't think NASA TV is doing anything special for it, but uh, it's it's good to know that Juno's still up there flying around doing things. Then after that, we have another Falcon 9 Block 5, and this one is on February 6th, and it's launching PACE, which is the Plankton Aerosol Cloud and Ocean Ecosystem. So I guess it's meant to monitor all of those things. So this is going to be put into a sun-synchronous orbit. The launch time is at 0630 UTC, and it's launching from Cape Canaveral from Slick 40. So that one you can watch if you're so inclined. Yep. All right, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. Which means it's time to do the show, and we would like to thank Ron Jiggies and Tim Dodd for our music. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Mike, Chris, Astro the Creek, Dennis O, Colin, Delta V, and Alex for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And if you want to support the show, please tell a friend, or better yet, leave us a review wherever you listen. You can visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign campaign and affiliate links. Get in touch. Find links to our mailing list, Discord server, and Mastodon account at theorbitalmechanics.com slash about, or you can skip all that by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it, and we will see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.